I know the title of this episode, America, a Banker's Labor Colony, might confuse some of you and might piss some of you off. I know you guys who hold the idea of America as a free and sovereign democratic nation very deeply and who fully believe the narrative about what America stands for and the role it plays in the world. Of course, that's what you've always heard and been taught, so it's what you believe. If you're like me, you may have even put your life on the line for those beliefs in the military or in public service. Believe me, I get it. It took me a long time to get to this point of understanding, but even when I did, it was hard for me to accept. I simply loved America, or rather the idea of America, way too much to believe any of this could be true. But what I'm about to tell you is true, and you are simply going to have to choose how you react to it. So open your mind for about 20 minutes, take it all in, and reflect on it later. This is not easy to process, but it will change how you see the world, and maybe your life. To understand how America slowly went from being a new and inspiring young nation to becoming the open-air labor colony and corporate social engineering laboratory that it is today, we first need to understand the nature of the weapon they used to conquer us with. It is indeed the most powerful weapon on Earth. That weapon isn't nuclear missiles or weaponized viruses. It's nothing destructive like that. It's actually something that is everywhere, something we all use and that we all covet. And not one person in a million sees it for the weapon of conquering control that it really is, except the tiny few people who control it. That weapon is money. Yes, money. That thing every one of you has, uses every day, and wants more of. The thing you exchange your time, labor, and ideas for in order to change it back into things you want. In your life, money may mean many things, and you may have very strong positive and negative associations with it. But when it's in your hands, and you have that pleasant feeling of having a good chunk of it free to spend your way, you have the power to animate your agenda. You can imagine what you want to accomplish and make it happen because money compels human action. It can bring your vision into reality because you can get other people to work for it or exchange things of value for it. That power is in your hands and it is a feeling we all love to have and are very much driven by. Remember that about money for the rest of this episode, that it animates human activity and manifests desired outcomes for those who possess it. And that the only thing more powerful than having huge amounts of money to do that with is being able to create it out of nothing. It is that selected few people who hold the power of creation that we'll be talking about today. And it is a godlike power in our realm, the power to create, to destroy, and to control. But do you even know what money is? Really think about it. When I say money, what image comes to mind? Most of you probably think of stacks of $100 bills or dollar figures in your bank accounts. If you have a good amount of it, the word money probably invokes positive emotions. If you are struggling with never having enough of it, as so many of us are in our slowly dying economy, then the thought of money probably gives you stress and anxiety. But whatever images come to your mind when I say money, they are wrong for 99.99% .99 of you listening to this. You actually have no idea what money really is or where it really comes from or what it's really used for. This episode is going to bend your mind, maybe close to the breaking point as you learn these things. So pay attention, but don't feel bad if you don't get it right away. 
It took me months of focused research only on the subject of money to truly understand it. Once I understood it, I was overwhelmed with this thought. Holy f shit. People need to understand this. Because money is the most powerful society-shaping force in the world today by a huge margin. And most people don't even know the first thing about it. To understand what money is, we first need to understand what money used to be. Now, to do this, we aren't going to go deep into history and talk about barter or wampum or Roman silver. We're only going to focus on America in this episode. Because in America, you can easily see a clear and systematic process of our money being slowly hijacked little by little and converted from what was once the world's most trustworthy currency to what is now the world's premier weapon of conquest and the ultimate social engineering tool. I'm talking, of course, about the United States dollar. For much of American's history, like most of human history before it, money meant one of only two things, silver or gold. That's it. There have been at times paper certificates used in place of metal coins, but these were representative of silver or gold in the U.S. Treasury. These certificates wouldn't be printed unless there was the correct amount of physical silver or gold on deposit with the United States government. You could actually go and redeem them if you wanted. It used to say so right on the bill, which used to be called a gold or silver certificate. And what is a certificate? Its legal definition is a claim of ownership, a receipt representative of actual property. So when America was still a sovereign nation, and we're talking the 1800s here, People knew better than to blindly trust governments to print money because back then people were educated and they knew a lot more about history. They knew that so many great empires had destroyed themselves through debasing their own currency. So the fact that American money was either physical gold and silver coins or paper certificates that had the guarantee of those coins written right on the bill itself was very meaningful. It gained America a reputation for quality money money that was readily used and accepted in commerce all over the world because people had rock-solid faith that it was sound. That concept of soundness is important. Sound money, which you'll hear about more and more, is a kind of money that cannot be printed at the whim of a government or a bank, but rather must be backed by some physical asset of intrinsic value that can't be manipulated or just created at whim. For most of human history all over the world, that has always meant silver and gold. For generations, America had that kind of money, and that was during the time in the early 1800s and onward that America was rising to become an industrial and economic powerhouse. And as America's obvious growth and future wealth became clear, it began to attract the attention of what was essentially an international financial mafia who had long ago hijacked the nations of Europe with debt and currency manipulation schemes fueled by war. A very short version of how that financial mafia became so powerful they were already a hidden hand controlling much of Europe by the mid-1800s is this. There was one banking family who had amassed so much wealth that they could loan huge amounts of money to anyone, but they found the best clients were nations, specifically monarchs, since pretty much every nation in Europe back then was controlled by a king or a queen. Not only were these huge and profitable loans, way better than making a bunch of small-time loans to farmers or merchants, but there was a certain state of affairs that would cause demand for these loans to explode to the point where the amount of debt or even the interest on that debt didn't matter at all by comparison. 
that state of affairs was war. And in those days, the Europeans were at war a lot. That banking family, which you've certainly never heard of unless you've explored this area of hidden history before, was the Rothschilds. And their big innovation was the central bank. A bank that would not only be the bank of banks for an entire nation, but ultimately the only place the nation itself could borrow money. Under this system, not only did a nation have to borrow all its money from the privately owned central bank, but it had to pay interest on it too. In effect, it's having to pay money to use its own money. Now, how did people fall for this obvious debt entrapment scheme? Simple, desperation. There's no more desperate money borrower on earth than a nation at war, because winning a war means you have to pay back some big loans, but losing means you lose everything and you suffer horribly in the process. As a result, if you were at war with another nation, which was happening all over Europe in the 17 and 1800s, you'd borrow whatever you needed to borrow to get through it. The worst possible scenario was being unable to find anyone to loan you the money that you needed to keep fighting. That alone meant you'd lose by default. The Rothschilds, because they had always been an international family with no allegiance to any nation, were in a special position here because they really didn't give a shit who won any war based on pride or nationalism. They only cared who won based on what would put them into the best position to expand their financial empire after the war was over. They could pump money into a side they wanted to win, cut money off from a side they wanted to lose, or pump money into both sides just to keep the war going and the debt building. Ideally, both sides would end up deep in debt and the war would end up being a stalemate, never changing the balance of power, but with both sides ending up in massive debt to the bankers. In that position, they would win every war, no matter who supposedly won the war in the history books. They were the hidden deciders of virtually every war in Europe in the 1800s. And then, something happened in America that drew them in like a pack of circling vultures. That something was the American Civil War. We won't get too far into that today, but it suffices to say that the Civil War presented a tremendous opportunity for the same bankers who had their financial manipulation down to a science. They leaped onto the opportunity to take advantage of a catastrophic split in the world's most economically promising nation. War finance was a huge part of the events of the Civil War that is rarely covered, but that is actually the most likely reason that Abraham Lincoln was actually assassinated. His killer was linked to the banking cartel back in Europe, and it was done because he had successfully instituted a form of sovereign American currency that cut all bankers out of the mix, a famous form of currency called the greenback. For showing the international bankers that America didn't want or need them during their internal fight, Lincoln would pay with his life. And as you'll find out later, that is the fate of every single world leader in every nation that has made the same attempt to this day. The rest of the 1800s would be known as the Reconstruction, and it was a time of explosive industrial and commercial growth. But this was not actually healthy growth for the American economy at all. This was the age of the robber barons, and these men you have heard of. Carnegie, the steel magnate, Vanderbilt, the shipping titan, Astor, the real estate tycoon, John Rockefeller, the king of oil and America's wealthiest man ever, and the infamous J.P. Morgan, 
a banker who financed and consolidated all of America's industry into the hands of a few ultra-wealthy elites. These men and a few others like them did not achieve their success in business because they were geniuses. That is a myth. They were selected to be the kings of industry and the owners of America's vast wealth by the same banking mafia that had dominated Europe through war finance. But this was a new form of conquest, one of business warfare instead of army warfare. But the winners were still being chosen in the same way. The chosen ones would get all the funding, anyone standing in their way would get cut off, and the chosen one, no matter how wealthy they were on paper, would always owe their loyalty to the bankers who made unlimited funds available for them to conquer their industry. And what the bankers giveth, the bankers could always taketh away. Because money, not real estate, not timber, not railroads, not oil, not even government, but money from loans was the driving force behind all of it. By the late 1800s, only around 30 American men were so wealthy and powerful, they not only controlled essentially the entire American economy, but the government as well. We aren't taught too much about this today because maintaining the illusion that America is a republic where your votes and participation actually matter is of critical importance to keeping control of the masses, and it always has been. But political corruption and ownership of politicians was every bit as rampant in the late 1800s as it is today, and actually way more obvious. They didn't even bother hiding it too much back then. The U.S. government was already completely controlled by bankers and their industrial tycoon agents before the year 1900. And to a large degree, America was already their private labor force and mercenary army by that time. But at that time, America still had quality money. And to conquer not just America, but the world, the money system would need to be hijacked also. Now, here's one annoying thing. If you're a banker so wealthy and powerful, you can dictate world events and the rise and fall of great powers. If money is still backed by gold, you still need to have the gold to move around in order to carry out your plans. The Rothschilds and their associates like the Warburgs, who will become very important later, had virtually unlimited gold to move around even back then but there was still more or less a limit on how much money could be created. What they wanted was a way to create money out of thin air, a new form of money that people would accept blindly based on trust in the government. And once that trust was deeply ingrained and everyone was dependent on it, they could make as much of it as they wanted or needed. That goal was the origin of the central bank that is still around today and still has complete control of the entire American money supply. That central bank is called the Federal Reserve, and it came into existence in 1913 after lots of fighting in Congress, propaganda warfare in the press, political corruption, bribery, extortion, and possibly even assassination. Because oddly enough, every powerful and vocal American in public opposition to the Federal Reserve was on the Titanic when it sank. And a few wealthy insiders like J.P. Morgan, who were supposed to be on it, canceled right before it embarked on its fateful journey. Now, that might be shocking to you now, but as you'll find as we go on this research journey together, the banking cartel will never, ever hesitate to go to any lengths to control the money supply of the world. They will kill any leader, start any war, lead any society into ruin, and they never stop. They only change course if they need to. Because control of money is the source of all their power, and no price on earth is too great to get it and to maintain it. This Federal Reserve is neither federal nor is it a reserve. It is not federal because it is a private bank that is not held accountable to Congress or to the President at all. 
It doesn't even need to be audited, and it never has been. Nor is it a reserve because it has no money. It creates money out of thin air and then loans that money both to banks and to the U.S. government, and it gets paid back interest on those loans once the money has been laundered through the U.S. economy and had value added to it by people working for it. It is the ultimate economic parasite, but very few people have any idea what it does. Even among people in finance, even among people with advanced degrees in politics and economics, and especially among elected officials, it is next to impossible to find anyone who knows what the Fed actually does or where our money actually comes from. The establishment of the Fed was the first phase of the economic conquering of the world through control of the U.S. dollar. It should come as no surprise that the establishment of the American income tax came the very same year. After all, someone had to pay interest on all these loans that the American government was taking from the bankers, right? The American government essentially signed a power of attorney giving up all control of its money to a private bank in that year. And the American people at that time became the collateral for those loans. And that arrangement has never stopped. We are still collateral for those loans to this day. So are your kids, and their kids will be too. And of course, because the primary purpose of central banks has always been to fund war, the Great War in Europe would begin only the very next year, and America would be dragged all the way across the Atlantic into a war they had absolutely no interest in whatsoever. Many young American men were slaughtered in the fields of France thousands of miles from home, having not even the slightest idea why they were really there. But the profits taken by the American industrialists and their bankers were unimaginable. And in World War I, America officially stepped into its new role as the banker's private mercenary force for the economic conquest of the world. That wouldn't be the only time that happened, of course. Only two decades later, America would be pulled again into another European war, and this was done by threats, fraud, manipulation, and a false flag operation so ingrained into the American psyche, most people can't bring themselves to believe it was actually planned. Pearl Harbor. I'll have an episode about only that, too, a little later. But the second phase of the economic conquering of the world using the dollar came at the end of that war, in a little-known agreement among the Allies called the Bretton Woods Agreement. In a small resort in New Hampshire in 1944, while everyone was being distracted by the headlines of the war, America's allies unanimously agreed that the U.S. dollar would be the new currency of global trade after the war was won. The only reason everyone agreed on this was that in 1944, the dollar was still technically backed by gold. A lot of American currency in those days was that loaned currency from the Federal Reserve System, which I mentioned earlier, which were called Federal Reserve notes. And what is a note, you say? Well, the legal definition of a note is an instrument of debt. So this was fake or fiat currency being loaned into the system as determined by the bankers. But America's primary currency was still gold and silver certificates. And once again, a certificate is a receipt or a claim of ownership. So back then, you could conceivably have someone pay you 20 bucks with a paper bill. And it might be a gold certificate representing a $20 gold piece held in a vault by the treasury. Or it might be a $20 Federal Reserve note, which actually meant that the government had borrowed that money into existence and there was no gold anywhere backing it up. 
But you're just an average Joe on the street with 20 bucks to blow. So what do you really care? As long as you can take that 20 bucks to a department store or to the bar and buy whatever you want with it. What do you really care what the fine print says? Well, nobody really did. But the devil, as you will learn, is always in the details. I personally own many different versions of American currency going all the way back to the Civil War. I collect them. And you can read right on a bill itself about the changing nature of currency from sound and backed by hard metal to actually representing debt of the U.S. government, which, of course, is a debt of the American people, a debt we have to pay back. And if we don't, then our kids or grandkids will. You can literally read the story of the hijacking of the American money supply right on the bills themselves, but I've never met a single other person who has ever done it. So phase two, the whole world agrees to use dollars in international trade because they are stable, trustworthy, and supposedly backed by gold, which in theory would alleviate a lot of tension between nations to avoid any more major wars. Sounds great, right? And that system worked pretty well until in the late 1960s when America's bloodthirsty government controlled by bankers and warmongers bit off more than it could chew in Vietnam. Vietnam turned out to be a much sloppier and much more costly war than anyone thought it would be, and the deficits America was running to keep it going were astronomical. To pay for it all, not to mention all the domestic social programs America was promoting at the time, America had been secretly breaking the rules of the game, printing way more money than it had gold to back it up. And other major gold-holding nations noticed this and began to cry foul. So Vietnam is going nowhere. There's rising tensions among a restless and increasingly anti-government American public. Not to mention, there's additional flare-ups in other parts of the world, and the big nations who had been holding and spending U.S. dollars for trade, ever since that Bretton Woods arrangement I told you about, started to get nervous about what the already sketchy American government was going to do next. These nations, France most loudly of all, started to say, Hey America, remember your money said I could exchange my paper currency for the same value in gold at any time? Yeah, you know, I think I'm going to do that now. France actually sent a warship across the Atlantic to pick up all its gold on deposit in the United States. And what do you think America said to that? America said, How about screw you? On a fateful day in 1971, President Nixon announced that there would be a temporary suspension of the dollar's convertibility into gold, meaning that now the only thing backing the dollar was the U.S. government's promises that it was worth something. That temporary move, of course, became permanent. And even though Nixon himself was later removed from power, the new ability America had given to itself to print all the money it could ever want or need stood firm. From that point on, the U.S. dollar became a full fiat currency. That is, money with no sound backing at all. Money backed only by law, saying, this is the money you're going to use because we said so, so get over it. And in a fiat currency system, there is no limit to how much money could be printed because nothing backs it anyway. But remember that it isn't the U.S. government that creates this money because America had already given away authority over its own money supply over 50 years prior. So it wasn't the nation, America, that had the limitless power of endless dollar creation. It was America's banks, especially its bank of banks, the Federal Reserve. The nation could borrow all the money it ever wanted or needed to pay for, well, whatever. But it would have to pay all of it back with interest. 
and that interest is collected and paid by our taxes. Now, the rest of the world was obviously not very happy about this, but the dollar, as the currency of global commerce and trade, was too entrenched. There was no viable alternative at the time, really, and other nations probably wanted to believe that the move really was temporary and due to a short-term financial emergency. Little did anyone know that in reality, a new financial world order had just been determined by a tiny handful of banking elites. The dollar was so powerful, it could be used as a tool of economic conquest of the world. And now, there was absolutely nothing standing in its way. Something critical to realize at this juncture is this. America has no money. All money, 100% of it, is loaned into the system. It's either borrowed by the government and spent, and we pay the interest on those loans with our taxes, or it's loaned by the Federal Reserve to big banks, who then lend it into existence through the loans they make to businesses, investors, and borrowers. It is a little mind-bending, but this is the point. All money is actually debt. Every single dollar in existence is borne by being borrowed from either the Federal Reserve directly or from its client banks, but it is created by that act of borrowing. There are no giant vaults or stockpiles of money or big national savings account. No money even exists. Money begins to exist when it is borrowed, and only banks can loan that money, even to the government itself. And that means the banks control all. They are the apex predator of our entire financial, economic, and political world. With a limitless flood of new money available, but only to the government or banks and corporations in a position to borrow it from the source, the end result should really have been predictable. We live today in a world completely dominated by the government and corporations, whose operatives have become fabulously wealthy in the last five decades, while the earnings of working and middle-class people have flatlined. Up until 1971, all economic classes in America were moving upwards together as the productivity and innovation of the American economy was like a tide lifting all boats. After that fateful year, inflation soared from 4% in 1971 to almost 9% in 1973 to 12% by the end of the decade. The value of everyone's money was slowly being sucked away by a tidal wave of new money being printed but it is the poorest people in this system that get hit the hardest. Since the 1970s, household debt has exploded while wages have stagnated. For example, the median price of an American home in 1971, when inflation was already high, was around $25,000. In 2023, it is $412,000. That's over a 16x increase, while the average hourly wages in the same period have gone from only around $4 an hour to around $23 an hour today, not even a 6x increase. Now, I could quote statistics like this all day, but the fact of the matter is, as an American today, your paychecks are probably bigger than they've ever been, and yet, you probably feel poorer than you ever have. This is all by design. Because remember, our money system is not just a full fiat currency system backed by nothing. Since it is all based on debt, what matters most is who gets that money first before the effect of inflation hits it. That would be the U.S. government followed by big corporations that can borrow directly from Fed-connected banks. And since the government spends the vast majority of its freshly printed money on politically connected special interests anyway, like defense corporations, big pharma, or funneling money to foreign countries and so on, 
It is the elites running these schemes that ultimately treat the U.S. government as a giant wealth extraction system. The upper crust of Wall Street executives, top corporate CEOs, and connected politicians get wealthier and wealthier every year at a staggering rate, while the value of everyone else's dollars slowly vanishes. But at the absolute top level, it is banks profiting most from this entire state of affairs. Because while the money loaned into the system doesn't exist, the interest paid back does. And that interest is always paid by you and me, whether it's by force through taxes or through interest on student loans, home mortgages, auto loans, and every loan you can imagine. This whole thing, as you can now clearly see, is simply a way to extract all our wealth slowly in ways we don't understand so we don't do anything about until eventually we own nothing, elites own everything, and we won't even know when or how it happened. It is nothing less than a system of financial enslavement, and we are those slaves in a banker's labor colony. And that same financial empire that holds us, the American people, in bondage like livestock to be shorn constantly, also wages economic war on the rest of the world, all day, every day, to bring the rest of the nations under control. And when they resist, the U.S. military, the empire's private mercenary force, bombs them into rubble, while the American media establishment cooks up a patriotic narrative for us to lap up. And we do. America is not a nation. It hasn't been one for a long time. It is a financial empire ruled by international bankers and corporate financial elites on a mission of global conquest. And it has been very, very successful, not only in achieving its goals, but in keeping the vast majority of Americans completely oblivious to it all with its absolute mastery of mass mind control. It is diabolical and it is brilliant, but it doesn't stop there. Amassing all the wealth of the world isn't the point. To a large extent, they've already done that. Assuming control of all the resources of the world also isn't the point. They've pretty much already accomplished that too. Assuming total control of the world's most important resource, its people, that is the ultimate goal. And the corrupted money system is only the fast track to get us to the end game. And in the next episode entitled Prison Planet, The Grand Conspiracy, I'll tell you just what that endgame is.